Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Welcome back to Create Out Loud with Jen Loud, and that's me. Today, we're going to talk to Krista Couture. She's an award-winning singer, songwriter, performer, recording artist. She is the author of the memoir, How to Lose Everything, about the tragedies in her life. She's also proudly indigenous, mixed Korean Scandinavian. She's disabled. She's an amputee, queer, and a mom of a beautiful toddler. She's a broadcaster, too, for CBC Radio, and about to become a producer of animated films. There's so much about Krista's story that I wanted to bring to you, and particularly how do you take real multiple tragedies and multiple losses that even one of which I think would have done me in and caused me to never bother to create again, and how do you keep going? How do you connect the dots? Listen in and let's find out how Krista does it. Writing about loss and trauma all the different losses and traumas in your life and your memoir, How to Lose Everything, and writing your songs for your different albums. How did you take care of yourself? Hmm. The taking care of myself mostly happened before mm. <laughs> I got to the point of writing, in particular with, with the book. Um, you know, when you're when you're grieving, when you're going through a loss, you fall into pieces and writing a book or creating a, a, a work of art is like a literal, you know, putting pieces together. And so I couldn't be still actively falling apart. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I, I, I was ready to write the book and that I'd done a lot of taking care. But of course, when it came to, um, you know, diving into some of those stories and revisiting memories, I, I also was prepared in that I would you know, think, okay, today's the day I'm doing that thing. Am I ready for it? Um, I'm going to make sure I'm checking in with myself. I'm going to, if it gets to be too much, you know, the tools that I've collected over time of taking a break, looking around, uh, checking with my senses, um, calling someone if I need to. But I also had a very clear plan with this book. Um, I knew what I was going to talk about. And I'd kind of decided even in writing the outline, where my limits were going to be. There's so much that is not in the book, you know, mm -hmm. because I knew it would be too much for me to write or things I didn't want to say, maybe too much to read. And, and so I had a plan and then I had, you know, a big picture plan. And then I had kind of those daily, daily plans of like, okay, today's the day. I know how to take a break. I know how to self-soothe and, and, um, and just was, you know, I took my time when I needed to. It sounds like the plan also, I mean, as a as a writing coach, one of the hats that I wear, I'm like, yes, a memoir is not about everything that happened to you. Yay, <laughs> of course, you structured it. And that's one of the things I hear my writers really struggle with because they get so caught up in, well, it all happened. Mm. And so I have to tell it all. But it brings me to a question that I have. I mean, you spent a lot of your creative career as a songwriter. Yes. That's a little narrative art. This is a big narrative art. How did you teach yourself to make that leap? Did you study? Did you? No, <laughs> <laughs> I just left. I mean, it's true. The stories that are in the book are stories that I have been telling uh, through my music for for years before that. Um, but exactly in a very different way in three and a half minutes in rhyming couplets, you know, and there's <laughs> there's more metaphor and, and you know, it. it is it about me? Maybe. Like, <laughs> right, right. Sometimes yeah, I'm listening to your songs to prepare for this. And I'm like, now, what is that? Is that what story is that about? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, spoiler, my songs really are all about me. But at the same time, you know, you're you're you can kind of couch things um, in a song in a different way. And, and I wanted to write the book to tell those stories in more detail, um, more literally. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, but making that leap it's interesting. In some ways, it was gradual. I had I had not thought of myself as a writer. I mean, a songwriter, yes, obviously. Um, I was blogging a lot. 
Um, and apologies to myself and all bloggers. I hadn't really taken that very seriously. <laughs> um, but and- you know, that's really true. We, one of the things that I also try to help people with is, is ditch those stories. Yes. What does it mean to be a singer songwriter, but I didn't win an award or I didn't get the big, you know, publishing deal or the big, uh, you know, same thing with the right. It's just so interesting how we define our creative efforts in ways that sometimes it feels safe and it allows us to express ourselves more, and other times it belittles our our work. I love the story about belittling blogging and how we put ourselves into boxes. What boxes are you in as a creative? Is there something calling to you, like poetry has been calling to me, and you're like, oh oh my god, no, I can't. Or is there someone offering you a reflection of where your work might go or belong or be seen? We limit ourselves. Um, I mean, maybe you think you're going to stay in your lane or something, but I just recently joined a writer's group and kind of had this bashfulness of like, well, I've only written one book. And then the the woman who'd kind of organized it was like, and seven albums. Like (laughs) the word writer is in songwriter. You can claim that title. And only one (laughs) book. I mean, even that makes me want to go, right? Oh my God. What is enough? What is enough? What is enough? It's ridiculous, right? I I know. I've written a book. It was a massive task. I'm very proud of it. Um, It's a beautiful book. Thank you. And so I hadn't hadn't like thought of myself as a writer or someone who was going to write a memoir. Um, but then I was invited to write an essay for an anthology called The M Word, Conversations About Motherhood, edited by Carrie Claire. Carrie had come across um, a blog that uh, my ex and I kept about our son Ford through Ford's life when he was in the hospital. And, and it was this blog that we'd written, you know, for our family and keeping people up to date as, as things unfolded. But it started to gather a broader audience. Um, and Carrie was one of the, the readers of that blog. And so she wrote to me when she was putting that book together and invited me to write an essay uh, about mothering when your children are no longer there. And again, these are, you know, ticking off boxes of the way we limit ourselves. Like the word essay to me just was like high school English. <laughs> like Five paragraph essay. You know? Tell right. them what you're going to. <laughs> Thesis statement. Conclude. Exactly. But of course, that's not the case. And there's all kinds of creative ways you can work with that. And and so I, I wrote that piece and I loved the experience. I loved it. I found it really fulfilling. I found that, you know, putting pieces together, even in this short form, um, really satisfying. It kind of scratched that itch I have to express myself, to create work out of my experiences. And it's with huge thanks to Carrie for that invitation. And then she, in turn, introduced me to um, her agent. And her agent was like, if you're ever going to write a memoir, I'd love to talk. And I was like, a memoir? Really? Maybe. Um, and it just kind of percolated over time until it grew into into this book. So yeah, it wasn't really a leap. It just kind of I was connecting dots. It sounds like that's how you create. You mm. you listen and you could connect dots. And there's a great story you tell about getting your name from your father's side of the family. And your dad was half Cree and half Scandinavian? My mother's Scandinavian, okay. my father's Cree, yeah. Okay, I'm and, sorry. French. I, and French, and French. Could you tell us that story? Because I really, it speaks to me, the theme of this podcast, Create Out Loud. <laughs> mm, yes, yes, thank you for asking. So um, I am mixed Cree and Scandinavian, and in our uh Cree culture, lots of indigenous cultures, we have uh, traditional names, or sometimes they're called spirit names. And I was given mine when I was two. Um, The names are given in ceremony by an elder. And the elder who gave me my name was named Raymond. We were in Wyoming at the time. Um, And and we came out of this ceremony and they they uh, I was given the name Saini Bay, which is Arapaho for singing woman. And now I'm Cree, but Raymond is Arapaho, so there you go. <laughs> he got to decide. Um, and, you know, and Saini Bay means singing woman. And Raymond said to my family, she's going to sing a lot and she's going to talk a lot. And I grew up being told that story, particularly when I was being cherished. You know, Saini Bay is the name that, you know, Krista Fay is when I was in trouble. It's, we all have that, like, that the voice of her mother. Krista Fay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Get and over so, here. <laughs> yes, stop doing that. Saini Bay was, was, you know, 
is when I was, you know, being cherished, when I was being lifted up, when I was doing the things I was good at. And that's what our, our traditional names speak to. They speak to our gifts. They speak to our role in the community. And it's not even, we call it a spirit name sometimes, but it's sort of very quite practical. It's like, that's mm -hmm. the thing you do. That's the thing you're supposed to do. Get on with it. <laughs> um, you know, and so I, but I grew up being told this lovely story. You're going to sing a lot. You're going to talk a lot. And I always got the first half of that because I became a songwriter and, and was performing and recording albums. And I thought she's going to talk a lot was like, just that I was chatty on stage or, um, I didn't think of that second half as part of being Saini Bay, as part of what I do in the world. Mm. And I go into the book uh, and kind of more about where I, I, a moment in time where that shifted in this, even being, you know, blogger or writer, it, it was like a moment of going, oh, she's going to talk a lot is also being singing woman. It's also expressing myself. It's telling stories. It's not just being chatty. It's also using my gifts. Yeah. As a writer as well mm -hmm. as, as a speaker and storyteller and, you know, many other forms that you, yeah. So letting that expand, letting that name expand. Yeah. All the ways we talk, right. Which are right. Like all the ways we connect. <laughs> right. And not being so literal about it. I can be very literal. I like little boxes. I like to put myself in a box and then I go, <laughs> why am I so bored in this box? <laughs> Were you afraid to sing? Were you afraid? Did you have stage fright? Yes, I still do. I still do. Um, when I'm on tour, when I'm performing every night, it goes away. I kind of get into the rhythm. Um, but if it's been a while, oh, yeah. <laughs> and and it stage fright kept me from performing and stepping into being singing one for for a little while I mean at the time I felt like a late bloomer now I know that you know 24 was really not <laughs> late in life oh my gosh <laughs> my daughter's about to turn 27 and, and and she's having that oh my god I've my life is over and you know like oh honey I remember that <laughs> right it's like no you're just getting started um that little young 23 year old Krista felt like I, I was I was late to the game but um I used to get terrible stage fright. I mean, terrible, like physically just in knots. But the 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 drive to perform won. <laughs> you know, I had to like live with the stage fright because I was so driven to um, to perform and connect in that way. How how did that drive win though? Because I know people listening are like, um, my drive's not winning. Yeah. You know, my fear is winning, whether it's a fear of being, you know, to me, it's often a fear of being seen. Mm. It's a fear of being judged. It's a fear of being found lacking. It's a fear of humiliation. Uh, maybe that's me projecting over everybody listening. <laughs> As you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, check, yeah. check, yes. So right. how does it, like, because when I look at your career, this is a feeling that I get. It's why I wanted to talk to you so much. It just, my, I feel my whole body going, keep going, listen, put the pieces together. There's such a faithfulness, even in the midst of such loss in your life. Hmm. And I mean, you're right. It's even if you don't have stage fright, <laughs> the, the vulnerability, you know, is, is what we're talking about. The fear, all the fears you just, you just named. And it is a vulnerable thing to do, to make work public, to be creative or to perform especially if it's autobiographical you know it's a very vulnerable act and I could understand why people would not want to do it <laughs> um, <laughs> because because it can hurt right it hurts if someone doesn't like it or if they tell you what you're doing wrong and you're like but that's just who I am okay um gosh how have I faced that or or how has the drive won I mean, in different ways at different times, I think after my first son died and I went back to making music, it felt like a real consolation prize. It was a distant second. I I would have rather be with my baby. I was like, but but he was gone and I I I was flailing. I needed to hold on to something and music became the thing. And so in some ways that drive was at that time a survival instinct mm -hmm. and, a, and a coping strategy. 
And there's ways I think that, you know, what I was doing um, was perceived as like, like very productive. And, and, and it's not that it was unhealthy. There was like a real mix of things going on in there. But I also threw myself into my work so much <laughs> that I kind of abandoned everything else. And with being a touring musician and being in a new town every, every night and getting to just kind of tell the same story and, and get used to what that story is, is also a great way to, to run away. <laughs> um, as long as you need to. I mean, that was really useful and, and, and I needed to do that. Um, so I think there's a time I think about that drive. It was just me trying to get through. Like, so I was, I was willing to face those fears and, and be vulnerable because I, I didn't know how else I would survive. Um, and so that's in the hardest, you know, times of my life. But of course it hasn't always been. <laughs> desperately you know, difficult <laughs> that that just I just wanted to pause there because it also brings up this deep and maybe I'm being Pollyanna but this deep self-honoring hmm. like you know I wrote the book why bother because I in my dark times which were I think called garden variety loss right not tragic loss of limb and children and thyroid cancer and I fell into why bother. I, it was hard to find that drive. And so there's something so beautiful about, it, it really brings tears to my eyes that you mm. found that. And again, I might be painting the picture in the rearview mirror. <laughs> I, you know, I, I get that. And I, I feel a kind of wonder at it too, to be mm -hmm. honest. There's something about, you know, sometimes, especially with songwriting, the way that I write music is very it feels magical, you know, it's it truly that, you know, the muse or a teacher, you know, it moves through me. And I feel like I'm just, you know, I, I'll just start to sing. And it's like some a song that I have remembered. And I really feel like a vessel in those moments, whereas writing the book felt much more intentional and grounded <laughs> and very physically me doing it. But, um, but music comes in this really, um, really magical way. And I've, I've often, I've always been reluctant to dissect that too much because I don't want to scare it away in a way. Like I don't want to figure out how it happens because what if it never happens again? I so get that. <laughs> like a, it's like a visitation from the magic of the universe. Yeah. And it's world. like, don't question it. Yeah. Just don't ruin it. Just let it be a bit mysterious. And I, as you're describing, you know, this um, like that, that feeling or sort of witnessing me having this drive over the years, I almost feel like I have a bit of a like, mm. I, I'm afraid to like pull back the curtain a little because I'm like, it, something happened, something carried me through. I feel really, really lucky. And and there's also um, things I can point to as far as like the resources I had and the community I had around me and um, my social location and stuff that made me being quote unquote, okay, possible. But when it comes to creating, I mean, there's also times that I really didn't or didn't want to or wasn't sure that I would I think um for a while I was writing songs that I didn't want anyone to hear and they are songs that no one will ever hear you know they're really cathartic <laughs> pounding on the piano sobbing material the kind of journaling sort of stuff journaling songs yeah yeah exactly not not a you're not crafting <laughs> you're just letting it out um and for a while I thought maybe that's as far as it will go, maybe I won't go back to performing. Maybe I won't go back to doing anything public because it felt raw. And I, I don't know if I ever thought of it as why bother, but I certainly thought of it as I can't. Mm -hmm. um, but time passed, you know, um, I waited <laughs> and waited. And then that little, that little sparkle of the drive started to return. Mm, that's beautiful. You've talked about how we have a get over it culture and how people are like, it'll get better. And you say, I can't promise you it'll get better. It'll be different. And I love that because when you lose people you love, when your life changes, when your health changes, what, whatever it is that I know everyone listening has gone through their version of, it is so infuriating <laughs> mm -hmm. when people say they're I know they often do it out of a way of comforting you and they don't know what to say they don't know how to be in the grief with you but it can be really infuriating but it brings up a question to me do you think sometimes because we do 
get over it to ourselves, that becomes a creative block. Because we, what do you, sorry, can you explain that? Yeah. So, you know, we, so we live in a get over culture, get over it, get over that grief. Haven't you moved on yet? And, or everything happens for a reason. And if we do that to ourselves as a form of self-violence, right? do you think that can create creative blocks that make it hard to go back in? Whether Mm -hmm. we're, whether we're working on that material, we may never write, paint, you know, sculpt out of the loss, but the loss is part of us. Right. Yeah. I think that, I mean, my belief, (laughs) my experience is that if we are denying ourselves the genuine process of those emotions, of, of truly living and experiencing those losses and being with sorrow and just taking the time it takes, however long that is for whatever kind of loss in the garden, garden variety or the tragic, whatever it is, (laughs) like whatever it is that needs time, um, that we are, we are denying ourselves um, a huge part of our human experience, even though it is an uncomfortable, <laughs> painful part. It's so important. And so I think if you're cutting yourself off from, from an experience, from some part of yourself, um, how could that not introduce a block somewhere, multiple mm-hmm. blocks somewhere in some way, whether that's in how you create or make work or in your friendships or um, in your physical health, you might feel it like all the ways that um, blocks can introduce themselves. I think that's that's true. I mean, I'm kind of just thinking through this out loud as you've asked it. This is not something I have a like um, a clear response to, but mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think that. I think I, I've been thinking of it in myself when I want mm-hmm. to take the easy route. It doesn't have. I mean, it doesn't have to be about loss. It can be about anything that's uncomfortable. And how over time it can make my work have, feel friable, shallow. Yeah. That there's a there's a there's a way I think as creatives we can't get around being present with ourselves. Yes. And yeah. it sucks. <laughs> but it's also terrific, right? Because you become such a more whole person. But God, it takes a lot of time. You know, there's just days I want to sit down and do my work and not be like, oh, I'm sorry, we have to go do some emotional processing. (laughs) I know. I know. I've definitely thought that. Like, can't I just write a hit song? Do I really have to like dive through my lived experience? God, what a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so speaking, kind of going back to performing. I love that you often wear a dress or shorts and we in the videos and we see your gorgeous prosthesis, which is everyone, you'll go and see these videos, but it's all flowered. And do, do you do that on purpose? Or is that just your style? Or is it like part <laughs> of you? You're like, I want everyone to see this because it's it's part of normalizing. All of the above. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't make my prosthesis or my disability visible until about seven years ago. And my leg was amputated above the knee when I was 13. So I'll be 43 this year. So it wasn't, it wasn't until there was kind of a few things that lined up as a turning point, but for a long time, a lot of people didn't know I only had one leg. Oh my gosh. And because they probably hadn't seen me go up or down stairs. <laughs> That's always the giveaway. But if I, you know, it's just, I, I, the way that I walk, like my, my gait is a bit wobbly and people who are paying attention might notice, but a lot of times people didn't. Um, and so, so it came out, I came out as disabled um, so just over seven years ago. I posted a photo on Facebook. That went super viral, right? You were pregnant. Is oh, not the, the pregnant, pregnant ones. Oh, okay. Yes. I mean, that was a real reveal. <laughs> this photo is similar, though, not as quite a big response, but I posted a photo from my prosthetic clinic um, talking about a type of knee that I just got to try for a couple of weeks. It's a microprocessor knee and it's expensive and fancy and does really cool things. And I just tried it to see what it was like. And I had just done a post on, you know, socials as you do being like, Oh, I have to take this leg back. And you know, that was amazing. And, and a lot of people chimed in saying like, wait, what, you only have one leg and wait, what, why do you have to give it back? Like, that sounds, that sounds amazing. How can we get this knee for you? And, um, a friend organized a crowdfunding campaign to buy this microprocessor knee. And what oh, was amazing, so it was, oh God, it was incredible. Um, I sometimes call it the knee that folk music built because it really, <laughs> it really like illuminated to me where I stood in the music community and all of the people who were there and wanted to help. And this, this, the knee, we called it the knee razor, the knee razor, um, 
happened after both of my sons had died. And I think there was a way that kind of saying, hey, you could help buy Krista this knee, gave people a way to do something for me when they had felt powerless for so long, you know. Um, and so I was given this incredible gift of, of money to buy this knee. And, and I, at the time I was like, this is so, I feel so loved. I, I feel so taken care of. How can I acknowledge this incredible gift? Like normally I just cover this, my, my leg up and no one knows, but maybe I should like make this public. How can I celebrate, um, this incredible life-changing event. And so that's when I decided to get what I call the flower leg, which is this prosthetic leg covered in flowers. It's very striking. It's so, um, so beautiful. It's my favorite accessory. It goes with everything. <laughs> and, um, and, and be really visible as far as having one leg, only having one leg, having a prosthetic leg. And not just, you know, like, it's not just like, oh, only one leg. I feel like it, you know, there's a neon sign, like you say, <laughs> wearing shorts or dresses. And, so I initially did it as this way to kind of celebrate what had happened and to experiment with being visible and see what that was like. And it really transformed how I saw my own disability, how other people interact with my disability. And I now use it very much in the way of like normalizing what disability can look like, diversifying what disability can look like, letting it be a beautiful thing that you can celebrate. Um, and not something that has to be hidden. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a way to, I, I, for so long thought if people find out about my leg, I'll be discriminated against, which is a real fear because disabled people are, but it, it turns out within the industry, there's also this way that it's become, you know, it's memorable. I, I, for so long, I was like, well, I don't want to be known as the person with only one leg. And the friend was like, but you are a person with only one leg. Like, why would that be so bad? <laughs> and so I think there's a way that it's like politically now important to me to be visible in that way. It It's sort of an effective tool in a way because it is memorable. And, um, and, and then it's also just this celebration of, of, of a point in my life where I learned to feel good about my difference rather than feel like I had to hide it. Mm, I love that feel good about because we all have differences, whether they're yeah, uh, public, or perceivable, yes. or not. Yes. And that's one of the things in the memoir, you you use identity first language. And I love that. So instead of saying I'm a disabled person, I'm a person with a disability. And it feels like so essential. Is that right? Did I get it right? I, I, to me, I prefer disabled person. That's identity first and person oh, first is person with disability. I flipped yeah. it because I have, because okay. I'm dyslexic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so disabled person versus person with a disability. Yeah. And why is that important? It's, first of all, I would say it's important that people get to choose and I always follow other people's leads around who they are they get to tell us and then we get to use the words they, they want to, us to use i i prefer disabled person for myself um for a couple reasons one is that my disability is not something i can separate from myself mm -hmm. how i see the world how i experience the world um you know in the same way that i'm not a person with swedishness or a person with cisgender womanness, like I, I am those things. I am disabled. Um, also because it's not a bad word. I think when people want to put, you know, with a disability, um, it's sometimes coming from a discomfort mm -hmm. with disabled <laughs> and that people think there's some like inherent, inherent, like negative value. Like the, there's merit associated with the word when it really is just an adjective. It is just an accurate description. Um, it also is important to me because I think it can help us look at what I'm disabled by. You know, there's, there's this way of talking about disability, like the disabled, the, the medical model or the social model. And for me, when we say person with disability, it's it's landing more in the the medical model. Like this is something wrong with me, you know. Maybe it's something we can fix. Um, I'm the problem. Whereas in the social model, or as a disabled person, I am disabled by the attitudes um, around me. I'm disabled by cultural and social um, beliefs. I'm disabled by a flight of stairs. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm disabled by the elevator that's not working at the subway station. And so it can kind of help point to 
inequities um, when it is kind of upfront. But I also recognize that I I have certain privilege when I when I talk about being a disabled person because I know for some people who feel really strongly about person first language many of those people have more severe disabilities and have been dehumanized and Mm -hmm. treated like garbage. And they're having to say, hello, I'm a person. And they're having to assert their humanity (laughs) in a way that I haven't had to. Um, And so I also recognize that I I think there's a way that when people feel really strongly about person first, it's because they have encountered more barriers, more severe discrimination than I I ever have. And so that's also why I really like respect what people want to use for themselves which languages they want to use and which ones help them yeah navigate what does your creative process look like these days i read that you're making an animated film related yeah. to your based on the book and that you went to film school years ago i went to film school even Did more you? years ago yeah <laughs> and like what's it like to go back to back to a creative form i yeah i went to film school originally in part out of um not being ready to step into making music. It was kind of a detour in that it was like, I really, I really wanted to go to music school. I was too afraid to audition. So I I went to film school. (laughs) How often do we do that? Oh, I won't go for what I really desire. I'll go to the left or the right. At least it's in the field. At least it's, it's like, it's still creative. It's in the, you know, um, Whereas like, you know, like I, like now I know I should have just auditioned. And if I didn't get in, I could have still gone to film school. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I loved working in film and television. It was really fun. And I learned a lot. And there was even skills that I picked up that were there that were really helpful in becoming self-employed and, you know, like how to use spreadsheets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, but I, I, as, as music became more in the foreground um, and then a few other projects over the years and motherhood and writing the book, um, television and film production was was no longer a thing but I do love it and I've always loved like the music videos I get to make or even just little social videos that I cut together like I really enjoy the medium and when I was writing this book or when I was writing the very last passage specifically I I instantly saw it um in animation um there's a there's a beautiful animation of a, a part of a Brenny Brown talk the one about um there's like a bear and a deer and mm-hmm. they're doing they're talking about um uh empathy and I sort of had that in mind Amanda Palmer also did an animation of a part of her audiobook and and I loved those I loved that idea and so I applied for a grant, as one does, <laughs> at Canada Council for the Arts. It was a new program. Uh, it was launched first in 2019 called the Creation Accelerator. And it was a development grant at first. I got that. was really lucky. And um, it's also in partnership with CBC. And it's this new thing between Canada Council, CBC, whatever. Krista's Canadian. And so she's talking about making her living, at least partially, by getting grants. I've never applied for a grant in my life. I'm American. I know art grants exist, but I've always thought about it as for real artists, not for people like me. And what that made me question is how we all put ourselves, yes, this seems to be one of the themes of the episode, in boxes. The boxes of where and how we earn our money. Are we thinking only grants and residencies? Are we thinking only I have to get my own clients, students, etc.? What is the model? Is it working? And if not, is there another model we want to learn about? And so I had a development grant. I spent a year developing an even bigger project. What was really exciting is that originally had had this idea, like, I want to animate this passage from the book. It's the How to Lose Everything, a field guide. And then when we got this development money, and I was talking to a producer at CBC Arts, Krishna Krupa, and she was like, well, what's a, what's a bigger version of that? Like, maybe it's a series of films. And I was like, ah, a series of films. <laughs> You're right, Grishina, it is. Um, I love how I, ideas about your work, come, how you listen to other people. 
you're not in a like, great idea. Yeah. And you, you get, you get excited and you get sparked. I mean, that's another theme in your creative life, right? Oh, what if you ever want to write a memoir, a memoir. <laughs> I'm just very suggestible. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you know yourself and trust yourself and your own creative instincts, and then you mm. can take stuff in well. So mm, a series maybe. of films. So I was like, that's a great idea. And, and I ran with that and I spent a large part of last year developing that concept, writing another proposal <clears throat> and being successful. I mean that this program, the creation Acceler accelerator has picked eight projects and I'm one of them and I'm uh, producing five short animated films, each one um, about a different experience of loss. So the first one we got to make last year, I made with an animator, Becky O'Neill, kind of as the like trailer or proof of concept. The good news was if I don't get the grant, at least I have the one film. <laughs> and, and so we got to make one film and then the four additional films, each one is written by a different indigenous writer. Um, each one will be by a different animator. And the stories are so beautiful. And animation, it, it's so beautiful and it's so perfect for these stories of grief because it's so laborious. I mean, frame by frame, slowly, mm -hmm. but surely you're one little change, flip one little change. And it's also, it can, it can change form and, and shape and things can be, um, you know, obscure or, or like, or strange and anim you know, can, can, you can do anything in animation. And so it suits these stories so beautifully. And we have 2D and we have like watercolor and we have, you know, uh, puppets and we have different styles. Um, but all of it's being done by hand, you know, and these stories will be crafted by someone touching each frame. And, and I'm so passionate about it. And I'm so excited. And so the series is called how to lose everything, which is the name <laughs> of my book. And now it's the name of this series. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of my next, my next big creative project. Amazing. Amazing. So um, I want to talk about the nitty gritty. You said, yes, going to film school and then making movies taught me about being self-employed. So I've been self-employed for 30 years. You've been doing it for a really long time. How do you handle the money and making sure that there's enough money coming in? I mean, yeah. that is such a question for everybody listening who thinks about doing it or who stopped doing it because the money didn't work. Yeah, it's so real. Um, and I mean, I joke about the spreadsheet thing, but I actually feel very grateful to having time to develop those kinds of skills. Um, paperwork skills, you know, a huge part of being self-employed is paperwork, a huge part of being an artist and writing grants and then writing grant reports and reporting on those things and keeping track of all your expenses because they need three copies of backup or whatever. <laughs> like it's tedious, but I, I, and I feel lucky that it's something I learned how to do because it, it has supported being able to make money and um, access money I think it can be really difficult to apply for grants. It's it's not, they don't make it easy. And so if you don't have those skills or access to someone who can help you with it, you might not be able to get that money. And I've been really helped over the years um, th through our arts councils, um, through Factor, which is one for music. Um, and it's, it's, I've been really lucky and, but I've also been really organized and I've figured out the you know, a way there's luck and there's sort of skill around working the, the grant system. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been really helped by that. I mean, it's hard, right? Like freelance and, and self-employment is hard. And you're, I feel like I'm always saying yes to everything because what if there's nothing else soon and learning how to say no. And, um, and in music, I mean, gosh, I, I didn't really mean to transition out of touring I mean, I did and I did, but I, you know, I had the vocal injury with the thyroid cancer and then um, decided to try and have my daughter and we knew I wanted to stay in one place for a while. And now during the pandemic, I mean, music and performing and, and dance and theater and all of those artists are out of work and it's terrifying. Um, and what do they do? And what would have I done if I hadn't happened to kind of land a few other jobs in the meantime? Um I think, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I got as an artist or as a musician was keep your day job as long as possible. And I did. And I and I've and I have I've come back to having, you know, a quote unquote day job or something that is 
um, regular. <laughs> and for me, like right now I work in radio. Um, and so that's sort of like my stable paycheck. That means there's always going to be a bare minimum, but that might not be possible for everyone too. But I feel like, yeah, talking about money and being transparent about money and even as parents, right. Because you uh -huh. see like on social, I, I see other parents. I'm like, how did you make that thing? And parent. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. How is that possible? I, and I used yeah. to be tried to be really transparent. Again, my daughter's well grown up and launched, but you know, my parents moved nearby for months. My husband and I would hand her off. We, he was a freelance uh, cinematographer. You know that you know we were always patching together things. Yeah. We were always trying to keep her well cared for. At the same time, we didn't spend every penny we had on <laughs> childcare. Right? Yeah, because that's also it's so real. And I mean, I was able to write this book because I got a grant that allowed childcare to be an eligible expense. Like, and that's, that is just a fact. And I might've found a way to write it otherwise, but I don't know if it would have been done by now. I mean, money just, that's gonna make or break it. And, and you know, we talk about the muse and being inspired and, and overcoming those blocks, but at the same time, like you have to earn an income and you will need childcare. <laughs> you need to eat. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I've been lucky with grants. I mean, in music, I've been lucky um, and, and with just kind of striking it with a couple songs that got decent radio play and getting royalties with that. But it's hard and it's scary. It's a tough, it's a tough way to make a living. I feel like sometimes I take both like sort of pep talks, like sometimes when people are thinking about going into the arts or, you know, music, which I know the most about. And part of me is like, absolutely, you can make an income. There's so many ways and you can teach and you can be, a, you know, being a side player is a great job and there's all these things you can do. And then other times and I'm like, no, don't, don't, it's too hard. <laughs> I feel that way <laughs> about telling people about writing and just, you know, having your own business. And yeah. And yet I also think, there's nothing else I could have done because yeah. I'm so deeply unemployable. <laughs> Truly. I had a straight job for a year and I got fired from the first one. I could, probably could still be at the second one, truly. <laughs> I think some people never left. <laughs> yeah. And it is like, and being self-employed is also a great job and doable. But oh. yeah, it takes work. So I have, since I was very young, been very passionate about the climate crisis and in our lifetime and i've been working on a project that i have on my blog it's called create plus climate trying to give creatives prompts and ideas and resources to use their voice in their own unique way to break the climate silence and and inspire people that the, it is we do have a possibility of turning this around does that feature in your work at all, the climate crisis? Is it, I know there's the song like Water Like Earth. I didn't know if that was mm -hmm. around that or, or do you, is that something that you use in your work or think of using your voice for? Like Water Like Earth was written for uh, an art exhibit at the Gardner Museum here in Toronto, um, which is a ceramics museum. And uh, it was a friend who created, uh, Louis Esme, who created this, installation of, about land acknowledgements and kind of a nod to land acknowledgements and the exhibit was called blood soaked ground or blood soaked earth which tells you what that what that was about and um, and so i wrote like water like earth kind of uh wanting to tie into like what are we actually talking about when we talk about this land when we're making a land acknowledgement really what are we saying we know when we do this to acknowledge like the indigenous nations who've been here for whatever but it's like and you know who were killed Mm -hmm. and you <laughs> um, were murdered and yeah and, and the, the genocide stolen so you know mm -hmm. um and so that's that's what that that song was part of it's interesting because it, it matters to me like the climate uh, crisis matters to me it's something that we talk about a lot in our home and our family and the choices we make and i don't know if it's been explicit in my work um it's i'm sure it's come up you know it's funny i i did an interview a couple of years ago with my not my most recent album, but the one before. And, and, and the guy was like, I hope that you get to talk about 
something other than yourself one day. <laughs> Not, and he meant it really kindly. He I meant, hope like, so, because that sounds kind of <laughs> crappy. But it, I mean, he I, meant so that there wasn't so much loss in your life that you might yes. be writing about. Okay. He meant that I hope you're not processing so much personal trauma that you get to just like look around you and talk about something else. Fair and enough, so fair enough. I, it might be that, you know, the other things that I care about um, will, will be next. You know, like I, I, although I would like to write more memoir, it wouldn't be one focused on loss. Um, and so maybe that's to come. Mm -hmm. Great. Good. And you know, I know it's one thing to listen to this podcast, right? And hear people having these breakthroughs and coming back from bad things and triumphing and triumphing, triumphing in some really wonderful ways. And then it can feel really difficult to put it into your own life. It just can feel far away. And like, they can do it, but then how do I bring it into my actual creative life? So I made this very cool ebook. It's one of my favorite things I've ever made for you. It is completely free and it's like me coaching you. It's got questions and breakthroughs and you just read it until you get to a thing that makes you go, ah, that's it. And then there's something for you to do right there. So it's quick, it's immediate. It really works. Thousands and thousands of people have downloaded it and used it. It's completely free. So just head over to jenniferloudon.com forward slash desire and get it and open it. Don't just download it, open it and just start reading and follow the directions. I think you will be amazed at how much easier it makes it to create out loud. What's your spiritual life like and how does it inform your creative life? Huh. I thought about that because of the story of, of how much ceremony you grew up around with your father. Yeah, I did. I grew up... Um with his ceremonies, with Cree ceremony, my ceremonies. And in a way that, I mean, I'm so grateful for because so many Indigenous people did not grow up with access to that in a way that I took for granted. You know, I, once I was a teenager and I was like, hey, whatever, dad, <laughs> you know, of course. And by the time I was ready to come back and say, okay, wait, can we talk about those teachings now? Because like, why did we do it this way or that way? Um, Oh, he was already sick and and dying, and so I didn't get a chance to to do that with him. But actually, like at the at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about how do I take care um, in creating or writing stories about these experiences, and 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 what I didn't say. I mean, the first thing I do is I get a smudge first, but it's almost like, well, obviously, <laughs> start with a smudge, <laughs> end with a smudge. Um, I think there's ways, as far as my spiritual life, there's practices like that that I I uh, rely on, um, and um, it it probably looks kind of like a mindfulness or a meditation practice, you know, just taking time to sit quietly, think about you know who I am in the big picture, <laughs> who you know connecting to my ancestors forward and back, and um, and practices with sage and with. With smudging, I haven't been to a sweat in a long time. There's a lot of things that aren't present in my life right now, um, as far as like spiritual care. Um, but I think those will those will come back. Since moving to Toronto, I mean, this is not my territory. I grew up mm -hmm. in in Edmonton. That's where I'm from. Then I lived in BC for 17 years, and I've been here for seven years. But in landing here, um, and it's such a mix of Indigenous nations and everybody here. Um, I've become more connected with ceremonial practices and it's been kind of, kind of coming back into my life in a way of also, again, connecting dots. I've been connecting dots recently. You're, you're a dot connector. <laughs> a you're, dot you connector. take the pieces and the dots and you make something. Right. Um, and so, I mean, that question, I have a feeling of, you know, ask me again in a few years. And, okay. And I think there'll, there'll be more to it. I, I will. I will. <laughs> I'm going to put it in my calendar. Love it. Can't wait. I like to end by asking, what will you learn next? Mm, what a great question. Let me think for a second. What will I learn next? God, well, I hope for so many things. <laughs> I hope I learn so many things. <laughs> How do I want to answer that? Hmm. What will I learn next? I will learn how to produce a series of animated films. I thought that. That was my first thought. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can, I'm, I'm building on some skills, but there's definitely a learning curve that I'm excited about. 
there's also such a learning curve and creative process uh, with parenting. Mm-hmm. My daughter's three and a half and she's oh, starting JK in September. So I'm going to learn <laughs> what it's like to have a kid in school. Um, and, you know, I'm learning every day with her. And are you learning also, I'm thinking about promoting this memoir. Is, mm. is, that, is that something that you're learning or does that feel really comfortable because you had to do it with your music? You know, I mean, how, what's it like to be promoting How to Lose Everything that, again, just to go back to the beginning, is so full of personal story and, 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 and tragedy? Yeah. I learned a lot through promoting my music over the years how to talk about this book. I think there was times, certainly in, earlier in my career, like my second album, where I said too much, more than I um, wanted to, really. And then I had enough experience with the media. And I mean, I know now the way they're going to pick something and the headline they're trying to write. And it's fine. They're doing their job. And I've had that job. And I get it. <laughs> um, but I I was ready by the time this book happened to be able to navigate those conversations and and I think I had learned like how do I be vulnerable and share something genuine and share something raw that is going to connect and not be a big mess online (laughs) I've had those moments too I think I've learned from them um um, but it's ongoing it is ongoing because things come up that I I didn't didn't expect and it is my first book and so there's like newness to the literary world that I'm learning for sure beautiful well thank you for an absolutely like connect the dots conversation I feel like I connected dots inside myself listening to you and possibilities for you know how am I going to be listening to what's what's out there that's calling me so thank you so much that's beautiful thank you it was really thought-provoking for me too I loved spending time with Krista. I loved her book, How to Lose Everything. And if you're thinking, I can't read a memoir about that much loss, it's incredibly life-affirming. And if you want to check out her music videos and see her prosthesis, those beautiful flowers, one of my favorites is Alone in This. I love that video. I love following Krista on YouTube and on Spotify. And I know you're going to love her work as much as I do. And be nourished by her presence. Elizabeth Hargrave is our guest next week on Create Out Loud. Who is she? She is a game designer. She has three games for sale, including the best-selling Wingspan. Now, game design to me is like, I don't know, so foreign. It's so three-dimensional and so many things to think about. And you really have to create out loud because you have to design a game by letting people play many iterations. So talk about vulnerability. So come back next week for Elizabeth Hardgrave. And in the meantime, have you subscribed? Have you given us a review? And if you want more of my work, you can always come over to jenniferloudon.com to create out loud. Thank you.